thank you very much for the invitation to contribute to this significant seminar series. And uh, may I congratulate the Ministry of Culture and Heritage and the Institute of Public Administration New Zealand for giving serious attention to the evolving role and management of the public service and its contribution to the life of this nation since the passage of the Landmark Public Service Act uh, in 1912. Well, I've been asked to provide a retrospective view of New Zealand's remarkable bureaucratic revolution during the mid to late 1980s and the so-called New Zealand model of public management to which the revolution gave rise. This is no small task. The public sector reforms during these intense, dramatic and unforgettable years were profound in their nature, scope, scale and impact. They utterly transformed the landscape of New Zealand's bureaucratic institutions. Moreover, they captured the imagination of public administrators and public management experts around the world for over a decade, contributing significantly to Wellington's tourist industry as waves of foreign politicians, officials and academics came from far and wide to inspect the New Zealand model and learn of its ways. I simply cannot do justice to the relevant subject matter in the limited time available today. Equally, I am very mindful that many within this audience have an immense understanding of the reforms and their impacts. Many of you here today, and I can see uh, <clears throat> Don Hun and Graham Scott, among many others, many of you here today lived the experience rather than observing as I did from the safety of an ivory tower. Indeed, many of you helped forge the reform agenda and or implemented specific initiatives. And you witnessed from the inside of the machine the remarkable events that characterize these turbulent and somewhat, sometimes, traumatic years. Please forgive me, therefore, if the brief remarks which follow fail to capture the essential character of the reforms, the drama of their introduction or their uniquely human dimensions. I will not, for example, focus here on the crucial role played by specific individuals, uh, the vigorous inter and intra-departmental debates that ensued over various policy proposals, the political wrangling that occurred behind the scenes, or the shock and anxiety felt by many staff within restructured departments and agencies. As circumstances dictated, I was employed in the Treasury as an investigating officer during the course of 1984. But for much of that year, I was seconded to the newly established Institute of Policy Studies to write a book about the history of incomes policy in New Zealand. In the event, I left the Treasury long before the main reforms to the public sector had been crafted or announced, let alone implemented. The closest I came on the inside was to peer review various papers towards the end of 1984 on how to improve the performance of the more commercially oriented parts of the public sector, initiatives that were the precursor to the State-Owned Enterprises Act. So four main things I want to focus on. First of all, the reasons uh, why the tenure of the Fourth Labour Government was marked by such a reforming zeal. A second, the goals and distinguishing features of the New Zealand model of public management. Third, what actually changed and what remained largely the same. And finally, what lessons can be drawn from this period of remarkable experimentation. My focus is specifically on the reforms to the public sector, hence I won't address in any detail the wider, but no less significant, economic, social and constitutional changes with which the public sector reforms were associated 
or which followed quickly in their wake. I realize the distinction here is probably a little artificial, but I have no choice. Well, New Zealand's bureaucratic or managerialist revolution, it's, as it's variously been called, has attracted much scrutiny. Hence, there is no lack of books, reports, chapters, case studies, and journal articles charting the course and outcomes of these transformative years. This includes substantial contributions from the leading architects of the reforms, such as Graham Scott, uh, external assessments by public management specialists in major international agencies, such as the OECD, and in-house evaluations by the Treasury and the State Services Commission. As a result, the merits or otherwise of the New Zealand model of public management, regarded by many as the purest embodiment of the principles and practices of the new public management, have attracted much debate, both locally and globally. Most aspects of the reforms have been analysed and critiqued, not least their rationale, their theoretical and intellectual underpinnings, their distinctive emphasis on contractualist modes of governance, their political, social and economic impacts, and their contribution to similar managerialist reforms in other jurisdictions. What inspired these remarkable and rapid changes? Why did New Zealand usher in such extraordinarily comprehensive and far-reaching administrative reforms? And why did we end up in the vanguard of the new public management rather than following in the wake of other reform-minded countries? Well, obviously there were many drivers. Let me mention a few. First, there were economic considerations. By the mid-1980s, New Zealand had experienced at least two decades of relative economic decline. The Muldoon administration had steadfastly resisted significant structural reform, as John R. Martin highlighted in his lecture last week. And a relatively large fiscal deficit awaited the incoming fourth Labour government. These issues required attention. Public sector reform, and especially a drive for more efficient and effective public services, needed to be part of the solution. Next, there were very real problems facing the public sector. Not least a cumbersome regime of input controls, a relatively inflexible system of human resource management, a complicated and potentially inflationary pay-fixing regime, and serious inefficiencies in the management of the Crown's commercial assets, to name but a few. I well recall, after joining the Treasury in early 1984, that it took the State Services Commission many months to approve a small additional increment to my very modest remuneration to acknowledge my receipt of a doctorate. And I did have a very modest remuneration in those days. I remember it was $14,000 a year. And it was a little more after tax than I got on my Commonwealth scholarship at Oxford, <laughs> um, which doesn't say anything about the generosity of the scholarship, I might say. <laughs> anyway. Many members of the fourth Labour government quickly became frustrated over rather more serious delays and deficiencies that they encountered as ministers. Aside from these wider systemic issues, New Zealand experienced a series of critical events, as they are called in the political science literature, without which radical reform would have been much less likely. These included the snap election of July 1984, the very brief but nonetheless serious constitutional crisis immediate, immediately following the election, the slightly longer but no less serious exchange rate crisis, and the entry into office of a relatively youthful Labour government containing many committed, if not passionate, reformers. Uh, these included, as everyone here I'm sure is aware, Roger Douglas, Geoffrey Palmer, David Cagle, Richard Pebble, and various other influential ministers. 
A final but equally important contributing factor was the vigorous support for comprehensive economic, social and administrative reform from within the Treasury and several other significant state institutions, most notably the Reserve Bank. Inspired by the tenets of market liberalism and the insights of the new institutional economics, senior officials like Rob Cameron, Roderick Dean, Roger Kerr, Mark Preble, Graham Scott, Bryce Wilkinson and many others provided incisive analyses of the weaknesses afflicting existing policy settings and comprehensive advice on how best to address these problems. Without this combination of reform-minded public officials, a responsive political environment, a legacy of economic decline, and a brief but salutary crisis, it is highly doubtful in my view whether New Zealand would have witnessed the bureaucratic revolution of the 1980s. Administrative change would doubtless have occurred, but it would have been less systematic, less sweeping, and much slower. Well, turning now to the main features of the reforms. The critical features of the reforms, of course, are well known and can be quickly described. In terms of legislation, there were three crucial initial acts, the State and Enterprises Act, 1986, the State Sector Act, 1988, and the Public Finance Act, 1989. Other related legislative initiatives also deserve note, not least the Reserve Bank, 1989, the Health and Disability Services Act, 1993, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, 1994, and the eventual enactment of the Crown Entities Act 2004, which finally completed some of the unfinished business of the 1980s. In more specific policy terms, five initiatives deserve mention. First, there was a rapid and systematic program of corporatization, privatization, and commercialization, together with a greater reliance on competitive tendering and contracting out. Within a decade, most of the commercial assets of the Crown had been corporatized under the State and Enterprises Act, and more than half of the new corporate entities, certainly in value terms, had been privatized. Second, under the State Sector Act, human resource management, including responsibilities for staffing, appointments, conditions of employment and pay fixing, was largely devolved to the state, from the State Services Commission to departmental chief executives and the uh, heads of government agencies. In effect, this ended three generations of a unified career service, characterized by common occupational classifications, common service-wide salary scales, and a career for life, as John R. Martin described last week. Under the new regime, chief executives were given significant new managerial responsibilities, and in some cases substantial increases in remuneration, but in return were exposed to a more demanding framework of monitoring, reporting, and accountability. Third, there were comprehensive changes to financial management. Amongst these were moves from program budgeting to output budgeting, from input controls to the specification of outputs and outcomes, and from cash-based accounting to accrual accounting. Additional features of the new financial management regime included the application of capital charges to most public sector organizations, a distinction between, uh, for the purposes of resourcing, monitoring, and accountability between the Crown's ownership and purchase interests and the enactment of principles of responsible fiscal management. Fourth, the reform set in train the development of a more integrated process of strategic planning and performance management, bringing together, at least during the 90s for a period, the annual budget process, departmental purchase agreements, and chief executive performance agreements. And people will be familiar with the sort of strategic management framework of those days with SRAs and KRAs and so forth. Finally, there were major changes in institutional design, including the placement of many 
service delivery functions into separate non-departmental agencies, about which I will say more shortly. This comprehensive package of reforms was driven by a series of well-articulated and I think well-understood objectives. Critical goals included improving allocative and productive efficiency and enhancing the effectiveness of government services, improving both managerial and political accountability, reducing the level of government expenditure and the size of the core public sector, reducing the range of state functions under direct ministerial control and minimising opportunities for the non-transparent use of public power, minimising the risk of bureaucratic provider or regulatory capture, improving the quality of the goods and services produced by public agencies, and making public services more accessible and responsive to consumers, as well as more culturally sensitive. And this period of time, of course, coincided with the emphasis on biculturalism and its role in the design of public institutions, processes, and services. Of course, not all of these specific goals received equal weight. For instance, improving the accessibility, responsiveness, and cultural sensitivity of public services attracted a somewhat lower priority than improving efficiency, cost-effectiveness, and accountability. Nor were all the goals fully realized, or at least not to the extent that some of the leading reformers had hoped. That said, many of the gains, particularly in efficiency and effectiveness, were impressive. These have been well documented by a range of researchers, and I will not recount relevant data here. In any revolutionary situation, some values, principles, and considerations invariably attract attention, while others are downplayed or ignored. New Zealand's bureaucratic revolution was no different. Let me just list a few of the goals that received relatively little or no weight. Enhancing the representativeness of the bureaucracy, including ensuring that women and minority groups secured a much higher proportion of the senior positions in government departments, agencies, and state and enterprises. Increasing the role of citizens, as opposed to consumers, customers, and clients, in the design, delivery, oversight, and control of public services. Enhancing the level of trust which citizens have in the public service, thereby improving the legitimacy of government. Developing new forms of governance for the handling of complex and controversial policy issues, such as joined up governance, collaborative governance, and co-management. Building great public institutions, that is, stable, enduring, highly capable, and well-respected organizations of which the country might be proud. Enhancing horizontal coordination as opposed to vertical integration across government organizations and more joined up service delivery. Devolving power and responsibility to sub-national government, whether local or regional, perhaps in the interests of enhanced democratic control. And improving the future proofing of the state by, for instance, enhancing the capacity of the state to identify and respond appropriately to major technological, demographic, geological, or environmental challenges. Some of these goals, such as joined up service delivery and future proofing, have received rather more attention in recent years, not least because of earthquakes and other natural disasters. Others, however, 
such as devolution to subnational government, have yet to witness strong advocacy. In addition to the goals which guided the public sector reforms, their particular nature and form was influenced by a series of distinctive principles and administrative doctrines. Four of these warrant specific mention. First, it was argued that the government should only provide and own services which cannot be more efficiently and effectively carried out by non-governmental bodies, whether private businesses or voluntary agencies. Accordingly, whenever possible, publicly funded services should be made contestable and subject to competitive tendering. Likewise, all commercial activities should be privatised, but if retained in public ownership, they should be structured along the lines of private sector companies with a clear specification of and separation between the responsibilities of the shareholding ministers and those of the board. Second, drawing on agency theory and transaction cost analysis, the reforms exhibited a strong preference for contractualist modes of governance. In particular, the use of explicit, formal, written contracts of one kind or another to govern the relationship between agents and principals, both within the public sector and between public sector purchasers and private sector providers. Classical contracts, in other words, were favoured in general over more relational and less explicit contractualist modes. Examples of the new devices included purchase agreements between ministers and departments and annual performance agreements between ministers and chief executives, or rather between the State Services Commissioner and chief executives ostensibly on behalf of ministers. Third, and related to this, the reforms embodied a series of principles relating to organisational design. It was contended, for example, that all state organisations should, at least ideally, have only one major function and that any conflicting responsibilities should, wherever possible, be placed in separate institutions. This preference for single-purpose organisations, the related preference for divided over inclusive responsibility, and the vigorous quest for contestable service provision in the interest of efficiency and effectiveness, contributed to a great deal of decoupling, restructuring and institutional fragmentation. This included the separation of advisory and delivery functions, the separation of funding, purchasing and provision, as for instance in healthcare and scientific research, the separation of regulatory and delivery functions, and even the separation of responsibilities for monitoring the Crown's ownership and purchase interests. In my view, some of these changes in organisational design and the related moves to short-term classical contracting were unfortunate, if not misguided. This applies in particular to the quest for the uh, contestable provision of secondary and tertiary health care services and the similar drive for the contestable provision of scientific research, which saw the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research atrophied into 10 separate Crown Research Institutes. I know not everyone will agree with this, but in my view, we have spent the last two decades trying to unravel these flawed and unfortunate models of contestable delivery. Another principle of organisational design was a preference for small-scale over large-scale organisations. I can still recall a senior official in a central agency arguing in the early 1990s that the then Department of Justice should be broken up because, with some 6,000 staff, it was surely far too big. He asked, how can one run such a large department efficiently and effectively? I remember responding that in many larger democracies, a department of 6,000 staff would be very small. 
Such comparative observations, however, cut little mustard. 6,000 staff was too many. Smaller was more beautiful, and having many small organizations was better than having a few larger ones. More recently, arguments based on considerations of efficiency and effectiveness have been employed to justify a program of organizational mergers and amalgamations across the public sector. Yet there appears to be precious little robust evidence to underpin either the once ascendant doctrine of divided responsibility or the more recent emphasis on inclusive responsibility, whether in the form of horizontal or vertical integration. Unfortunately, decision-making on institutional design over the past few decades has, in my view, all too often been dominated by fads and fallacies rather than facts and foresight. Fourth, a central principle of the reforms was, the respective, was that the respective responsibilities of ministers and departmental chief executives should be clearly specified and precisely delineated. Under the new approach, ministers were responsible for determining the, speci the specific outcomes they desired to achieve and then purchasing the type, quality and volume of outputs needed to realize these outcomes. Meanwhile, chief executives were responsible for advising ministers on the nature of the outputs that would most likely achieve their desired outcomes and then selecting the appropriate inputs to produce the purchased outputs. Underpinning this approach were at least two questionable assumptions, namely that multiple shared or overlapping responsibilities could and should be strenuously avoided, and that all ministers should be relied upon, or at least could be relied upon, to be well-informed and discerning purchasers. I will return to the latter point shortly. But with respect to the former assumption, it is worth noting that unlike a presidential model, the doctrine of collective cabinet responsibility is at the heart of our system of government. It assumes joint or shared responsibility for decision-making. It binds all those who are party to the policy-making process to the outcomes of this process unless they resign. If there is some, something fundamentally wrong with mutual, shared, or overlapping responsibilities, then we urgently need a new system of government. Well, let me offer now some remarks in relation to an assessment of the reforms. As previously noted, um, much has been written uh, assessing the strengths and weaknesses of the New Zealand model of public management. And I won't rehearse all the evidence and arguments here, but let me just offer some high-level reflections. Significantly, most of the legislative and administrative foundations laid during these pivotal years of the mid to late 1980s have endured. This surely is testimony to their many virtues and to the gains that this new approach to public management achieved. Thus, while the New Zealand model has continued to evolve since the late 1980s, uh, in some ways I'm sure some of the reformers would regret, in other ways I suspect they would applaud, Despite this evolution, many crucial features have remained intact. This includes a decentralized system of human resource management, the basic principles underpinning the Public Finance Act 1989, and at least some of the crucial doctrines of institutional design, such as the separation of commercial from non-commercial functions. Whether the deficiencies of the reforms, what, sorry, whatever the deficiencies of the reforms, it would be hard to find anyone who would want to return to the previous model of public administration. Of course, the period from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s was traumatic for many New Zealanders. Unemployment almost tripled, as did child poverty rates. There was a huge surge in income inequality. There were significant social changes, including a substantial rise in sole parenthood. 
There were also major changes in migration patterns and significant technological innovations, not least in the field of information and communications technology. While the public sector reforms contributed to the social dislocation of these years, they were not the primary driver. This lay elsewhere in the macroeconomic policy shifts and related program of economic liberalization, which in my view was essential. But collectively, these interconnected reforms generated major social impacts, many of which were keenly felt. Not surprisingly, the electoral response to this period of economic turbulence and social upheaval was significant. Without doubt, the trauma of these years contributed to the referendum votes in both 1992 and 1993 in favor of proportional representation. A constitutional shift which, at least to some degree, has made any future bureaucratic revolution much less feasible politically. This is but one of the many ironies of these times. Another irony relates perhaps to the high expectations which the public sector reforms had concerning the managerial capabilities of cabinet ministers. Arguably, the reforms expected too much. In fact, the theory and practice were not well aligned. As Simon Upton reflected when serving as Minister of State Services in 1989, and I'll read from this, I'm sure many of you will be familiar with his observations, but they are quite, um, quite sharp. He says, the theory <clears throat> relies heavily upon ministers playing their role as principals in a contractual regime com comparable to a marketplace. We are expected to be the energetic and well-informed purchasers, monitoring output delivery and bringing particular sanctions and pressures to bear as required. But the reality is far from that of a market model. It is characterized more by monopoly supply, compliant demand, arbitrary prices, and asymmetry of information. Some of the more obvious assumptions of the model that do not fit with reality include, and he lists a whole series, I won't mention them all, but he goes through the view that alternative suppliers exist for the delivery of core government services. The simple reality is that ministers do not stop purchasing from one department and actively look to purchase the same service from another. The view that departments and ministers religiously adjust quantity and quality dimensions in their purchase agreements in response to changing resource levels and changing third party demand. The view that cash will not be dispersed to the department if output targets are not met and that purchase agreements are sufficiently specified to allow this anyway. The assumption that at any point in time departmental capability exists to deliver on priorities uh, for the government of the day and the gross assumption that departments can always continue to reprioritize within baselines without affecting organizational capability, and the equally absurd assumption that productivity gains can be extracted centrally from across-the-board budget cuts. It is a bold leap of faith to assume that ministers cheerfully fulfill all of the requirements of the current public management system. In the same way that the incentives regime facing chief executives is more assumption than practice, I suspect that the case for ministers is generally the same. Upton went on to urge that uh, the public service acknowledge the divergence between theory and reality and address the systemic gaps that exist from a longer run ownership and capability perspective. While I rather doubt that these gaps have been fully closed, equally I wonder whether the latest administrative reforms as embodied in the Better Public Services Initiative have given sufficient attention to the role of ministers and what can reasonably be expected of them in terms of providing strategic leadership and undertaking managerial oversight within their portfolios. 
Some of these issues have been usefully explored in a penetrating analysis by Michael DeFrancesco and Elizabeth Apple um, in their contribution to uh, the recent book edited by Bill Ryan, I thought I saw Bill here as well, uh, and Derek Gill, The Future State, well worth a read, and I particularly recommend the chapter by Michael and, and Elizabeth to your attention. I think it's one of the insightful analyses of the uh, kind of the role of ministers uh, that is assumed under the sort of model of public management that we have that I've, uh, that I've read. I think it's probably the only, actually, serious analysis uh, available. All right, on a different note, it is important to highlight that despite its sweeping breadth and enduring impact, the bureaucratic revolution left many crucial aspects of the governance of this country essentially unchanged. The revolution did not fundamentally alter the country's constitutional framework, or at least not directly. Today, New Zealand remains a highly centralized, unitary state with a unicameral parliament and a system of responsible government. Around 90% of total public expenditure continues to be collected and allocated by the central government. The functions of subnational government remain relatively attenuated, certainly by international standards, and the funding base of local and regional governments is still very modest. Excluding microstates, New Zealand is today, as in 1985, amongst the most centralized democracies in the world. Equally important, the critical conventions of collective cabinet responsibility and individual ministerial responsibility were not significantly altered by the reforms. The political executive remains responsible to parliament and the bureaucracy remains responsible to the elected government, with ministers vicariously responsible to parliament for the actions and performance of their departments. Likewise, the bureaucratic, the bureaucratic revolution did not overthrow some of the core principles underpinning the Public Service Act 1912 and the State Services Act 1962. Our system of public administration remains meritocratic, non-partisan and thoroughly professional. Providing free and frank advice continues to be a critical role of those with policy responsibilities, albeit, as previously, within the context of loyal and obedient service. Hence, while the reforms brought major changes to the structures and practices of the public sector, the constitutional role of the bureaucracy was not altered. An independent central agency with responsible for the appointment, remuneration and performance of departmental chief executives was retained, namely the State Services Commission. And thus far, almost a generation after the passage of the State Sector Act, there has been no explicit politicization of top departmental appointments. Partly for this reason, international concerns about a move to political governance, as the late Professor Peter O'Coin has called it, have been much less pronounced in New Zealand than in many other Westminster-type democracies. Importantly, too, the state continues to undertake pretty well all the crucial roles usually assigned to governments, democratic or otherwise. Such activities are sometimes called the defining functions of the state or inherently governmental functions. These include the provision of policy advice to ministers, the conduct of diplomacy, the provision of most policing and correction services, the defense of the realm, the control of the borders and the collection of taxes. A critical reason why uh, these functions are seen as inherently governmental is because such activities are very hard to specify, negotiate and monitor and are equally difficult to enforce via classical contracts. Accordingly, it is argued that in-house provision and reliance on the hierarchical control which this facilitates is preferable to external contracting and other market-based instruments. This is because hierarchies enable more direct and effective hands-on control 
greater flexibility to accommodate unforeseen contingencies and more organizational redundancy, thus minimizing risk. Equally, from a transaction cost perspective, external contracting can be both inefficient and unwise when there is high asset specificity and small numbers bargaining. And these are common features of most inherently governmental functions. Interestingly, at various stages during the heady days of the reforms, there was some serious advocacy that some of these functions, including the core advisory role of departments, should be contracted out to private sector providers. Thankfully, uh, reason and common sense prevailed. So, with hindsight, it might be asked why the reforms did not take an even more radical turn. Why did the State Services Commission survive? Why have there been no explicitly political appointments of departmental chief executives as provided for under Section 3511 of the State Sector Act? Why was the privatization and contracting agenda, contracting out agenda, not pursued with even more vigor than it was? And why has the New Zealand public service remained largely free of corruption and cronyism, even though that was, of course, one of the concerns that some critics of the reforms raised? There are other questions, too, that we might ponder. Why, for instance, have so few women, Māori and Pacifica, been appointed to the most senior public sector positions? Thus far, for instance, not a single woman or Māori has held the top roles in our three central agencies 25 years after the reforms. Middle-aged Pākehā males like me continue to dominate most of the major departments, especially those with important economic functions. Similarly, the senior ranks of the public sector contain very few representatives of the many and varied Asian communities and indeed people from many other parts of the world who now reside within these shores. Why did the reforms not encourage greater gender equality and ethnic diversity? Such questions are not necessarily easy to answer. The reform trajectory could obviously have taken a different path. Other policy choices were possible on multiple fronts. Plainly, however, a number of significant constraints were at work. They included the country's political culture and traditions, the limits imposed by regular parliamentary elections, the sheer difficulty of maintaining a reforming zeal for an extended period in a democracy, the small size of our policy community, and the limited pool of capable leaders, and no doubt many other factors that people here could suggest. Finally, I'd like to comment on one of the most enduring and unfortunate legacies of our bureaucratic revolution namely the fixation with organizational restructuring. Between 1985 and, mid, and the mid-1990s, most government departments, as well as a high proportion of non-departmental bodies, were substantially reorganized and re-engineered. Often such restructuring was undertaken not just once, but twice, or even three times within a relatively short period. In 1998, more than a decade after the first major wave of departmental reorganizations, which started, as people here will know, with the changes to environmental administration during 1985-86. So in 1988, the State Services Commission estimated that up to a quarter of all public servants were affected by the process of restructuring at any one time. Not surprisingly, this led the then State Services Commissioner, Michael Winteringham, to suggest that New Zealand had, I quote, slipped into a restructuring culture, a culture characterized by an instinctive recourse to the restructuring option, irrespective of the specific nature of the problem. Such restructuring, he argued, can be damaging and disruptive. 
Not merely is it costly in financial terms, but it invariably results in a loss of institutional memory and has negative effects on staff, morale, commitment, and productivity. Accordingly, he urged that structural solutions should only be adopted when there were clear structural issues that needed addressing. 14 years later, 2012, there is little evidence that this advice has been heeded. Indeed, as Derek Gill and Richard Norman highlight in their superb chapter, again in The Future State, the emphasis on restructuring has continued largely unabated and unrelenting since the mid-1980s. Let me quote. They write, Available data show restructuring in the New Zealand public sector is high by international standards and a product of the, quote, freedom to manage approach adopted in the mid-1980s. Compared with other jurisdictions, most restructuring is initiated by chief executives rather than driven by cabinet political considerations. The majority of new chief executives initiate restructuring in their first year in their role. It's kind of a rite of passage if you don't restructure something wrong. And an increasing number of outgoing chief executives initiate changes in their last year. <laughs> I'm quoting here. Restructuring as a lever of control has been overused. To use an analogy, it is, like, it is more like a hammer that has defined too many organizational performance challenges as nails. According to Gill and Norman, the excessive focus on restructuring is at least partly rooted in the fixed term nature of contracting for departmental chief executives and the fact that most chief executives are appointed from other organizations rather than being promoted internally as was previously much more common. One day, I trust this preoccupation, if not obsession, with restructuring will end. But if the cause is in fact linked to the current shape of chief executive employment contracts, then perhaps we will need to revisit their design. Well, to sum up, New Zealand's bureaucratic revolution of the mid to late 1980s was remarkable in all manner of ways. Without question, the reforms were bold, imaginative, systematic, comprehensive, and far-reaching. Indeed, their influence spread far beyond these shores. Many benefits were secured and many positive outcomes were achieved. Significantly, much of the new administrative architecture has endured. It has stood the test of time. There is, accordingly, much to celebrate. But not all the reforms of these heady years were equally beneficial. Indeed, as I've argued, some were based on questionable assumptions and or failed to deliver the promised results. Many problems, too, have endured. Under the new model of public management, New Zealand has not been immune from poorly costed projects, poorly targeted investments, poorly designed programs, poorly specified contracts, poorly implemented services, poorly regulated industries, and I think of the building industry, poorly functioning defense equipment, Lord Sparrows, <laughs> uh, or poorly maintained infrastructure. Likewise, the public sector continues to exhibit unfortunate cases of fraud and corruption, undeclared or badly managed conflicts of interest, wasteful expenditure, unwise procurement, substantial cost overruns, serious administrative errors, unfortunate breaches of privacy, illegal spying, inadequate policy evaluation, insufficient long-term planning, the unsatisfactory enforcement of environmental health and safety standards, and expensive computing failures. 
Admittedly, without the bureaucratic revolution, the performance of the public sector may well have been worse, perhaps far worse. But there is much about which we cannot be proud. This is not to question the overall wisdom or direction of the public sector reforms of the mid to late 1980s. Rather, it is to highlight that no system of public administration is perfect. There will always be internal tensions and difficult trade-offs. There will always be mistakes and deficiencies. There will always be scope for improvement. And there will always be wicked problems for which no system of public management, however well resourced or competently staffed, can ever fully solve. That is the nature of the world in which we live. It reflects the enduring constraints of resource scarcity, conflicting values, political divisions, and our flawed and fail, frail humanity. These are the hard realities with which public administrators, both in New Zealand and elsewhere, must grapple on a daily basis. As a society, of course, we must always strive to do better. We must endeavour to build capable, enduring, highly respected and widely trusted public institutions. Indeed, great institutions. Similarly, we must seek conscientiously to realise the common good, to protect the public interest and to secure a just, compassionate and sustainable future. Yet we must always be willing to acknowledge in deep humility and regret that our best will never be good enough. It will always fall short of that to which we aspire. The bureaucratic revolution of the 1980s is no exception. It embodied many noble ideals. It liberated a wave of innovation, creativity and enterprise. Yet it also revealed many of humanity's intrinsic limitations and flaws. It could not have been otherwise. Thank you very much. Thank you,